Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's interview, I sit down with Jason Redman, who is a longtime friend of ours. He is a retired Navy SEAL and New York Times bestselling author of The Trident, which is a great book, and Overcome. Jason uses his 21-year Navy SEAL career to relate how the mindset practiced for decades to lead, build elite teams, and deal with the highest level of adversity can transform your life and business. Jason teaches how his overcome mindset helped him rise above a leadership failure, which he has had some, vicious enemy ambush, and life changing injuries, and even a debilitating business crisis. Jason's incredible story, positive message, and vibrant energy makes him a highly, highly sought-after speaker and is both nationally and internationally recognized. Please sit down and enjoy this interview with former Navy SEAL Jason J. Redman. I'd like to thank one of the sponsors of the show, and that's Trident Coffee. Listen, do yourself a favor and grab a six pack of the Trident Nitro Cold Brew. I don't know about you, but oftentimes coffee actually hurts my stomach. And this just seems to be a low acid, very smooth coffee. Not only do they just have Nitro Cold Brew, but they also have keto lattes. And of course, if you've listened to the show before, I will tell you all about the churro low carb donuts. You will love this. And it is an amazing company. Trident Coffee makes your wellness journey easy, especially if you wanted to add in a little bit of caffeine. There are so many delicious nitro cold brew options. They have ketogenic, sugar-free, low calorie, plus a robust selection of roasted beans, which is actually one of the, the reasons that I initially found um, Trident Coffee at Bonnie's in Coronado. Go to tridentcoffee.com forward slash Dr. Lion so they know I sent you and so that you can receive 20% off when shopping online. They have keto treats and coffee beans and my favorite, Nitro Cold Brew. Again, that's tridentcoffee.com slash Dr. Lion. I promise you will love these products. I'd like to thank one of the sponsors of the show, Paleo Valley. And let me just tell you that Paleo Valley beef sticks are the way to go. If you have not had them, you must try them. If you know how important dietary protein is, Paleo Valley beef sticks are a way to get that protein. Their beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. In addition, they are beef sourced from small domestic farms in the U.S. It's really important that we leverage our current agriculture, especially in the U.S. from small farms, small domestic farms. Paleo Valley does this. They're really good people. I love what they're doing. They use real organic spices to flavor their beef sticks. They are not using pesticides or, quote, natural flavors. Again, these are delicious. They're great when you're on the go. If you have kids, if you are running to a work meeting, whatever you need, they're amazing. They're fermented. So they ferment their beef sticks and they create naturally occurring probiotics, which are great for gut health. 
They taste amazing. And you can go to paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion. They don't cut corners. They're prioritizing your health over profit. They use conscientious processing and manufacturing. They are a great company and you will like these products as much as I do. Again, that's paleovalley.com slash Dr. Lion. Jason Redman, former Navy SEAL, shot eight times, 21 surgeries. You know, there's this saying that hard times create strong men, and you are the epitome of that. Welcome to the show. We've known each other for quite a a long time now, and um, I'd love for you to share how we know each other. And also, second, after that, really who you are. And we're going to get into all of it. And we're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about physical leadership. We're going to talk about the underbelly of what it means to recover. Yeah. Physically. Physically. Uh, mentally. I mean, mentally, too. Another side that a lot of people definitely overlook. And my goal is that we have a very transparent conversation that perhaps people haven't heard this side of you which I feel so grateful to be able to bring out. I love it. Okay, let's rock and roll. So we'll uh, we'll start with uh, how we met, uh, which is kind of funny because uh, I don't think we had any clue how our paths um, had intersected before we ever actually met each other. And, uh, and a mutual friend of ours, Greg Amundsen, actually initially connected us. And I came to New York, uh, happened to be in New York and said, you know, Greg had connected us and I reached out and said, Hey, let's get together. And you said, oh, okay, yeah, let's, uh, let's link up at a, I believe at a coffee place. And I had my buddy firefighter, nine 11 survivor, Tim Brown with me. And we went there and met and, uh, and you had your, um, I don't even know if you guys were engaged yet. I think you were just dating then, but Shane, your now husband, who was also a former seal, and uh, and I, I met Shane and you said, hey, I'm dating Shane. He was a former SEAL. And I said, hey, nice to meet you. And he said, well, actually, we've met before. Um, and it turns out that Shane was actually a new guy in our troop. Uh, and, you know, those that say, well, you're a terrible leader if you don't remember. But guys, give me a break. Uh, Shane came into the platoon right after I had been wounded. So probably the first time I met him, I was still undergoing heavy surgeries. Uh, I probably was only in the platoon for a day or two, a month at most in between surgeries. So, uh, but uh, it was neat because Shane worked directly under my team leader who saved my life. And, uh, and it's been neat to, to build a great relationship with you guys and become friends with you guys and to watch him, you know, have a great career and then leave and now obviously go after this medical career. Yep. Essentially, that makes us family. Yeah. And uh, again, family. Which means we can talk smack. Yeah. So I wanted to set this up for you all, because if I make the occasional joke or even insult at Jay, he would never take it personally. Never. (laughs) Not only are we all family, but I'm also your physician, and we'll get into that. Yeah. And I take bullets well. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of bullets, you've had quite a bit of plastic surgery. Yeah. Like a like a Hollywood starlet, a ho- yeah, a Hollywood starlet, but not for that reason. 
Tell me the story. I know the story, but I, I want the listener to know why you suffered eight wounds, arm reconstruction, face reconstruction, 20. 40. 40. 40 surgeries. 40 surgeries. Mm -hmm. Not 21 surgeries. Yeah. 40 surgeries. No small task. That is major. Yeah. Um, you know, any any military career, I mean, law enforcement, fire, there is a risk of personal injury. I mean, I recognized it in my career. Although I will admit, I never, I always thought I'd be killed. And I kind of set everything up like, if anything bad happened to me, I'd, I'd be killed and my family would be taken care of. You know, I had taken care of all of that. Um, and I always thought like if I was wounded, you know, it'd be like the eh, merely a flesh wound and I'll just, you know, it'll be no big deal. I recover and I get back. And I don't think any of us ever think about being like severely wounded. Um, and we hadn't had a lot of guys severely wounded in the SEAL teams. Guys had either been killed or... Um, you know, relatively minor injuries um, at that point. And it was 2007, so still somewhat earlier in the war and definitely in the height of the war. And we were operating in Iraq. We were actually at the end of our deployment. Um, and uh, we, how were, far? How far? we were one week from going home. Yeah, one week in a very, very action-packed, eventful deployment, a deployment that as a SEAL, uh, it was everything I ever dreamed of. You know, as a, oftentimes people can't wrap their head around that. You know, the average civilian is like, oh my God, like you would pray to have combat like every night? Well, yeah, uh, we trained to that and we were going after very evil people. And uh, so we got to operate at a very high level. I mean, during that deployment cycle, we executed 80 missions um, to go after mid-level and high-level Al-Qaeda and insurgent leaders. And we were we had had a lot of close calls also. We had lost guys on that deployment, uh, not, not directly in our troop. We had had guys wounded in my troop, but our sister troop in Baghdad, uh, we lost uh, Jason Lewis and, and two support guys on July 6th. And we actually lost a, a seal in the turnover op on um, uh, in in April. Petty Officer Clark Swedler was killed right at the very beginning of the deployment, not far from where I would end up eventually getting wounded. Actually, only a couple of hundred yards away. So, kind of interesting. We bookended the deployment on massive firefight that unfortunately got seals wounded and and Petty Officer Swedler killed. And then, uh, and then, yeah, one week before going home, walked into a very well-executed ambush going after a high-level Al-Qaeda leader for the Al-Ambar province. And myself and uh, multiple teammates got shot up in this gunfight, um, which um, has garnered some national attention just because of the layer, level of intensity of that gunfight. Um, it's been highlighted in some documentaries. It was the, we ended up having a call, uh, fire close air support from an AC-130 gunship directly on our position, which was the closest fire mission in the entire Iraq war. We literally called rounds on our position, uh, which the, the air force initially denied. They said, we will kill you if we bring these rounds in. So tribute to my team leader did a great job coordinating that. Um, but I was in that engagement struck eight times between my body and body armor. Um, so with two rounds hitting me and the left elbow, one round in the lower bicep, one round on the inside of my forearm, which uh, two large PKM machine gun rounds, which 
a, a, a sledgehammer probably could not have done more damage than what these well a sledgehammer would have done less damage than what these two bullets did to my elbow and then uh, I took a round in the face. Uh, I had turned to try and get out of the line of fire, and it caught me from behind, traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, blew out my right cheekbone. What was left of the cheekbone broke, kicked out to the right, vaporized the orbital floor, and broke all the bones above the eye, um, broke the head of my jaw, shattered my jaw to my chin, and uh, and. Uh, knock me out. I, I I came to in the middle of the gunfight after that, but uh, pretty devastating injuries. Um, I remember waking up. Um, you know the progression of of injuries. Real, I'll, I'll hit this very quickly because I think for some people, um, at least for me, I didn't think I was going to make it. I uh, there was definitely a point where I'd lost so much blood. I understand trauma. I understand I was going through shock and i was going through all the signs i mean we're trained at probably a, a basic you know paramedic level within special operations so i knew <laughs> i knew what i was going through and i just kind of i knew i was losing a lot of blood they couldn't get to me i mean it took about 40 minutes for that gunfight before we finally were able to bring in the medevac and uh when i came to out of surgery in baghdad I, my first feeling was like total elation like oh my god like i am still alive like um but fast forward probably 96 hours from the time I woke up from that first surgery and got to Bethesda, like reality started to set in uh, with doctors and nurses just telling me how grievous my injuries were, that it's going to take years to put you back together. Initially, they were talking about amputating my arm. I had no use of my left hand. I had massive nerve damage. I was traked. I was wired shut. They were feeding me through a stomach tube. At, by 96 hours, I had already had uh, seven blood transfusions. And, uh, and all of that was starting to sink in. And I think a lot of people don't realize, I mean, four years and 40 surgeries and, and battlefield injuries are really dirty. Uh, so I had, like many wounded warriors, a lot of infection problems. Um, over the course of my recovery over, o over those four years, um, this actually ended up being the third nose they built me. The first two failed at one point. I was just walking around with a hole in my face looking like uh, Skeletor. And, and nobody wants to look like Skeletor. I mean, even Skeletor did. Right, right. so, so, I mean, it was hard. I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard journey. So, yeah, kind of interesting to be at the height of my career getting ready for my next leadership progression one week from going home and in the blink of an eye suddenly everything changed and you know i faced four years of uh, a really arduous medical uh path to put me back together yeah it you know oftentimes the seal warrior aspect is highlighted the strength the grit the resilience is incredible you are amongst the finest warriors. The second part of that is the underbelly of injury, of time away from family, of significant deaths of brothers. And I'm curious, did you have a last thought? There was a moment where you felt like you weren't going to make it. Did you have a, a thought before that or were you... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my thought process on the battlefield. I mean, initially when I was hit, 
I was still in mission mode. So I was like, okay, it's a really bad situation. What do we have to bring to bear to the problem? And I started thinking through uh, just if I was still in a leadership position, how I would be dealing with this problem. I was thinking about our assets, where our guys were. Um, kind of realized I was out of the fight and that my team leader kind of had it. And then kind of the next phase was anger. I was angry that I had allowed us to get in this situation. Uh, I was angry as I was losing more blood um, that I was starting to accept the fact that I was going to die. And uh, I was angry that the enemy would have the satisfaction of knowing they killed me because uh, I, you know, for them killing a special operations, especially a SEAL, uh, was like a, a big victory for them. Um, and, um, and then, yeah, I started really thinking about my family, you know, there, there at the end, you know, I don't, I don't want to say my life flashed before my eyes, but I will say that, uh, I definitely thought about the things that I had done in my life, good and bad. I thought about, uh, regrets I had, things I wish I hadn't done, things I wish I had done. And, uh, and then I thought about really my, my, my family. I mean, Erica and my three kids, my son, uh, would have been eight, um, which we're actually recording this on his 23rd birthday, which is crazy to think about. Um, but, uh, my two daughters would have been five and, and two. And all I thought about was how much I would give anything to have just one more minute to say, I love them. And I wish I had, you know, spent a little more time. I think as SEALs and many of us in this life, we tend to focus on our profession. Um, and especially in a job where it really, it is much more than just a job. It truly is a lifestyle. And I think sometimes we, we, you know, screw that up. We tend to lean a little too hard into, uh, that lifestyle and sometimes take our family for granted. And I think I had done that also. So in the end, those were the things I was thinking about. That is a near-death experience. And you had the opportunity to experience death essentially and not die. Yeah, You're here. And the trajectory of your healing you know, a lot of your discussion is built around overcoming and the way in which we build resilience. People in a lot of your other interviews talk about the firefight, talk about the exceptional career that you had. What about when you were laying in that hospital bed and you woke up and you realized half your face is gone, nose isn't there, uh, your left, you're right-handed though, correct? You didn't have to. Yeah, thankfully. thankfully. Um, here you are, incredibly athletic as a human. Now, your physicality, which typically the SEALs, again, it's a warrior culture. It is not a culture that sits behind a desk, essentially. It's part of who you are. How, when you woke up, what, it, what, was the, what were the first thoughts? Yeah, like I said, I mean, reality started to set in in the hospital. Um, and and my story is pretty multi-layered because there's an additional layer that um, I think I'd much rather focus on some of the medical aspects or at least the recovery aspects because we get into it so much in other interviews. But um, 
I had failed as a young leader uh, a few years prior to this and almost got myself kicked out of the SEAL teams because of my arrogance and just, you know, it wasn't that I had messed up. Everybody messed up, and uh, but I fought against it and I was really arrogant and, and it took a long time to really recover from that. The good news in the, is in that when we talk about resilience, I, t I tell people that um, when I talk about resilience, I call it the overcome mindset. Um, and I say, it's not something that you can just turn on when bad things happen. You have to do hard things. You have to push yourself physically, mentally, emotionally. And uh, that way, when those things happen, you're better prepared. It's not like you're in total uncharted waters. You're like, oh, I've been here before, maybe not this severe, but at least I've you know slowly built myself up. So for me, I've been through quite a few hard things in my life, obviously SEAL training. Um, I had been through the hardest thing I've ever walked was that leadership failure. When that leadership failure first happened and I thought they were going to kick me out, I almost killed myself. That's how low I was. I put a gun in my mouth and thank God I did not pull that trigger, but I convince myself that it was the end, um, which so many of us in life unfortunately do. And I have teammates and friends that unfortunately have believed that and, and pulled that trigger. Um, I did not. And I endured over those next couple of years to slowly build myself back up. My tactical reputation, my, my leadership reputation, these things that were really torched. Um, part of it occurred at ranger school. I got sent to ranger school, which actually was probably one of the greatest things that could have happened to me. I really grew up as a young man, and especially as a leader. So all those things came together. And it was through this incredibly hard journey that when I got wounded, I will admit for about a week, I really struggled. It was tough. I mean, you know, to be told, hey, we're thinking about amputating your arm, you're, it's going to take years to put you back together. I mean, I remember at one point thinking to myself, like, okay, so my SEAL career is probably going to be over. I'm going to be permanently disfigured and I'm going to be disabled. Um, you know, those are hard things to deal with. But because I'd already been through this, I was like, listen, dude, like you just walked the hardest road you've ever been through. Like, this is no different. This is different. I mean, it's different. This is medical, physical. You just did it emotionally. Uh, and, and this is going to be no different. You're going to take it. You're going to approach it the exact same way. You know, you, you, you choose how you drive forward. You, you look for the positive things and, and reduce the negative things. Most people totally focus on all the negative things. So we shift that focus and we say, okay, well, what are the positive things? Hey man, I'm still here. I'm still alive. Uh, Hey man. Yeah. I still have my right arm. You know, even if I lose my left arm, I still have my right arm. Um, you know, there, I had a great team of doctors and, uh, and I had a relentless, uh, overcome mindset that I was going to drive forward and figure this out. So that, that, that was the path. And, uh, probably from a very, it only took about a week to kind of come to that decision. Uh, I remember at one point I had said, you know what, this is just medical buds. Uh, BUDS is uh, SEAL training. The acronym stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. And during SEAL training, it is incredibly physically, mentally, and emotionally demanding. And oftentimes, sometimes the evolutions get so hard, especially during Hell Week, that they tell you, 
just make it to the end of the next evolution. Do not think about anything else. All you think about is one step in front of the other till you get to the evolution. And it's amazing when you talk about an overcome mindset and the way the human body and the mind works that you can be, you could probably be getting tortured, like literally physically tortured. And you don't think you can take any more, but you say, I'm just going to go a few more minutes, a few more minutes. And you really think you're at your breaking point, And all of a sudden they stop for however long, that period of time that you got to break your mind and body and emotions reset. And then suddenly, if they're like, we're going to do this again, there's a little bit of a mental, uh, but that reset point, it's amazing what you can still do. And SEAL training kind of taught you that. Like if I can get to this breaking point, I can take a breath, I can reduce the pain and discomfort. And then it's like, I can go again. And I told myself that that medical path was going to be the same. Like, hey, this is medical buds. You take it one surgery, you take it one rehab, you take it one step at a time, and we just drive forward. Wow. You were really familiar with your own internal breaking point, whether it was mental or physical. You were familiar with the intensity. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't gone through that leadership failure. That is where I really got deep into. What would have happened if you didn't? You know, I'll be honest, I probably would have gotten either myself or somebody else killed. I mean, I was arrogant. Uh, I, I was, my decision-making process was driven by me and not really the mission or the guys. The team. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was a selfish leader instead of a selfless leader. You had a very famous sign, the orange sign, which by the way, I have right here in case you didn't have it memorized. Yes. And this sign is something that you put on your hospital door. People struggle with all kinds of things in life and the levels at which individuals struggle, whether it's a physical illness, whether it's a cancer, whether it's a death, really um, determine the trajectory of how they navigate it. Can you... If you remember, which I know you do, tell me about the sign. Tell me what it said. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the sign occurred about a week after I was in the hospital. And uh, anytime anybody suffers like some major traumatic event, like what Dr. G just talked about, I, I, I call them life ambushes. Uh, so no different. I suffered this, you know, grievous battlefield ambush, but everybody gets ambushed in life, you know, whether it's... Um, a divorce or the ending of a relationship or personal or professional failure or, or grievous injury or accident or illness or sexual trauma or the loss of a loved one or, you know, one of the biggest ones I've seen is a loss of a child. There's a period of time where we're dealing with grief and we're trying to figure out where the hell do I go from here? Um, and no different from me. When I was in that hospital, it was like I had to accept, hey, my my military or my special operations career may be over, you know, definitely I'm really banged up and, you know, they may or may not be able to repair my arm or my face, but no matter what, you know, I got to figure out how to drive forward. And I think that is, you know, really the pinnacle moment of a overcome mindset because it comes down to the greatest gift I believe that any human has is you have a choice. No one... When bad things happen to you, no one forces you to lay there 
and not get up and drive forward. And we may think that, oh my God, I'm too consumed by grief. I'm too consumed by loss. I'm too consumed by pain or whatever it is. But the reality is you still have a choice. Your brain still works. And when you tell your brain tells your body to get up and go or to do something, you know, barring paralysis or something like that, it will go. And, uh, I, I had, um, I kind of had a defining moment because I was kind of struggling, kind of figuring everything out, like where am I still on the X, as I call it, of this life ambush. And I had some, uh, I had some individuals come into the room and they were talking, um, they were talking about what a shame. I, I kind of started to drift off, so they were having a conversation by themselves and, and I overheard it and it basically was like, what a shame, what a pity. These young men and women that are in here are all broken and battered. They're never going to be the same. Um, I call this placing people into the victim box. Um, we, we all do it in life. Uh, I, I try not to anymore, but we have a tendency, like if we saw, see something bad happen to someone, like we already chart out the negative path they're going to be going down or predict their future based on this negative thing that happened to them. And they were doing that to me and the other wounded warriors in this hospital. And then they left. And I remember laying there, like letting that sink in. And I'll be honest, it actually was a little bit of a gift because um, I definitely am the type of person that if you tell me I can't do something, it only fuels my fire to do it and prove you wrong. And they kind of had done that, whether it was intentional or not. They kind of said I wasn't going to recover, that I wasn't going to become like the best version of myself once again. Um and when uh, it was just filled with pity. And when my wife came back in the room, I couldn't talk. All I could do was write. And I wrote to her. I said, that's never going to happen again. No one will come into this room feeling sorry for me. And from this point forward, I refuse to feel sorry for myself. And that's when I wrote out this sign. And it really, you know, a lot of people often wonder, how many days did it take you to read the sign? Write, write the sign. Uh, zero. It was a total stream of consciousness in the moment. Uh, it was originally written on a piece of printer paper, which is what I was using to communicate with. Um, but we transcribed it word for word onto the orange uh, poster board a few days later. But it said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming into this room with sadness or sorrow, go elsewhere. The wounds I received, I got in a job that I love, doing it for people that I love, defending the freedom of a country that I deeply love. I will make a full recovery. What is full? That's the absolute, utmost physically. I have the ability to recover. And then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And uh, we, <laughs> we signed it, the management. So um, I told my wife, I said, put this on the door. No one is allowed into this room until they read this. And a couple days later, a teammate took his trident off his uniform, the seal emblem, and tacked it into the bottom of the door. And uh, a New York firefighter who lost both sons on 9-11 took a picture of it and wrote about it, which ended up going viral. Um, and it was at that point that it was highlighted in, in news media. Um, it ended up earning me an invitation later to meet President Bush in the White House. But that sign today has gone on to motivate millions and millions of people. Um, I did not keep it. 
it it hangs in the wounded ward at Walter Reed. Um, I've gotten so many letters and thank yous from wounded warriors who touch it for luck before they go to surgery. But uh, I tell people that is the power of choice. That is the power of choosing positivity in the face of negativity. And it will be hard. It will suck. It will go against everything you want to do because you want to lay there and feel sorry for yourself because you've gone through whatever catastrophic thing, this major life ambush that's happened, but you have a choice. You can get up and drive forward. And we never fully know the impact of what that's going to be. I mean, look at the impact of this sign. It's gone on to motivate millions and millions and millions of people. And uh, so that's why I tell people, you, you got to get up. You got to overcome. When... You saw yourself in the mirror for the first time and your wife saw you. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, kind of an interesting thing. And this is, uh, I, I hope that you have a lot of uh, medical, I hope you have doctors and nurses and medical professionals that listen to this because I, 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 I don't pull punches at poor some doctors have no bedside manner. And I think sometimes medical staff lose sight of the fact that you are treating a person, you are not treating a thing. And I think the staff that day lost sight of that. I was just a number that they needed to get a 360 degree CAT scan. And it was probably two weeks after I'd been there. I had not seen myself in a mirror yet. I was afraid, honestly, to look in a mirror. I was, I was afraid at what I was going to see. Um, <laughs> Amazing how it brings back emotions. Um, I don't think you've ever actually talked about that. No, I have a couple of times, but um, it's, uh, I felt like I would look like a monster the rest of my life. Um, um, and I wasn't ready to look at myself. And uh, so they put me in this machine. Well, when, and you step into this 360 degree medical device. Uh, that rotates. I mean, it's basically a, a it's a small CAT scan that rotates around your your body for them, but you stand in it, you know. And I think they specifically use it for head injuries uh, because of the level of complexity of my my facial damage. They needed this 3D CAT scan, and then they were gonna they were gonna create a 3D acrylic model to figure out how to put my my face and skull back together. And uh, when I stepped into this um, device, one, super weak, from all the blood loss, I could not walk. They, they had me in a wheelchair, so it took a ton of energy just to get up and stand, and I felt terrible. Um, so already I feel bad. Uh, and yeah, I got into that machine, and there was a mirror right in the center, and that was the first time I saw myself. And, uh, and I, it was shocking um, what was left of my nose was only a couple of orange tubes. My, the right side of my face was swollen to like basketball size. Both eyes were blood red bloodshot The the, from my facial, from the swelling, all the stitches that were holding things together were just really like, um, I don't know, like, like, pushed out and protruded and just, I, I, I felt like I looked like Frankenstein. Um, so it was shocking, uh, to say the least. Uh, Erica was super upset. and uh, That there was a mirror in there? Yeah, and that we didn't know about it. She was crying, which did not help the situation. 
Um, what was she? Had she? She obviously had seen you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she had she seen me, upset. but she was upset that I was not ready, and that's how I saw myself for the first time. And that's you know that's a fault to the medical staff. That's like, hey, um, you have this guy who has grievous facial injuries. Like you know, maybe you should wonder, hey. I don't know. Maybe they didn't think about it in any way whatsoever. But the whole process was very impersonal. It was like, hey, you are, you know, you're, you're, you're ticket number 27, and we need to hurry up and get to ticket number 28. So uh, for all you medical professionals out there, you know, the people you treat are people. They have feelings and they have, yeah, man. That's uh it's intense when a provider doesn't realize, you know, the words matter in acute emergency situation. And the words also matter as individuals are going, like you said, in overcoming something. And we know all the uh, medical professionals listening here likely uh, have big hearts and are, and are open. I'd like to thank one of the partners of the podcast, that is First Form one of the supplements I want to highlight today is called Adrenal Restore. And we've all heard about the adrenal glands. They are responsible for regulating the production of many different hormones. Oftentimes, when we think about chronic stress and anxiety, we think about the adrenal glands. Adrenal Restore is a supplement that I have been using for a very long time with those individuals who are, quote, wired and tired individuals that are deploying, that are undergoing extreme stress, and not just extreme stress, but going through cyclical periods of stress, which is nearly everybody I know. Check out Adrenal Restore. Go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. You can get free shipping. Also, the customer service with this company is incredible. They make the best products, all of which we use as well. Check out Adrenal Restore and you will see on the label they have, has chamomile in it, it has rhodiola, licorice root, ashwagandha, and a whole handful of other ingredients. Check out Adrenal Restore. I'd like to take a moment to thank one of the sponsors of the show and that is InsideTracker.com. You can go to InsideTracker.com slash Dr. Lyon for 20% off. If you care about your health and you care about wellness, you must know what is going on under the hood. People age at different speeds. There's, of course, biological aging and chronological aging, which is what your actual number is in terms of your age. And when you think about how you are aging, you'll want to check out your hormones. You'll want to look at your cholesterol and your thyroid. There's a whole number of biomarkers that are really, really valuable that you should know about. You can go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lyon to do this yourself. You'll get 20% off. These blood panels were created by leading scientists, geneticists. It is important for the analysis of your DNA and your blood to see where you are ultimately optimized. You'll even get a daily action plan, has personalized guidance on nutrition, supplementation, all the things. Again, this is a very great service and it eliminates the friction or the excuse to getting blood work done. So go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lyon. 
and you can get 20% off. How long was that process to rebuild your face? And had how was it when you began to step out in public? Um, really tough. Uh, so it took uh, four years and roughly 40 surgeries uh, to totally put me back together. My, my arm injury um, was probably... I don't know, 15 surgeries, and then the majority were definitely the facial reconstruction. Which was harder, dealing with the face or the arm? Um, probably the, I don't know, that's a tough, tough question. The, um, I would say probably the face. Uh, once again, I'm very fortunate that I am right-handed, so it wasn't like some people who are having to now relearn how to use uh, you know, their, their non-dominant hand. Um, I will say that the rehab process with my arm was frustrating. I was probably in the best shape of my life when I got wounded. I was super strong. I was screening for our next level of SEAL team. So I had been physically training at an incredibly high level. And um, it's, it's humbling to go from being in like the best shape you've ever been in to suddenly you're so weak, you can't even get out of bed. You have to have doctor, you have to have nurses help you use the bathroom. I mean, how humbling is that? Um, and I remember like, like the first time they got me up to kind of start some rehab. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe two weeks, two and a half week, two weeks, maybe after they got me up and all they had me do was walk in place for like three minutes and I was exhausted. I felt like I'd run a marathon. So that was kind of the first, like, Oh my God, like, Geez, how how long will this take for me to recover? You know, I was running tens of miles and lifting heavy weights and doing all this stuff. And then the other thing I really remember was when we first started working on um, my my hand function. I had no use of my hand, and um, and I remember all they wanted me to do was grab these little plastic cones that weighed nothing. I mean, probably half an ounce, and they wanted me to like grab this cone and like unstack it and stack it. I could not do it. I could not make my hand work, which um, was super frustrating. So th those were some of the first things, but you know, over, over uh, four years of recovery, um, I think the hardest thing was you would have advances and you would have setbacks, um, really complicated injuries. There is no you know, like, you know, there is no, oh, here's the, you know, here's the, you know, step-by-step -step menu to do this. Um, they are figuring it out somewhat as they go. I mean, this is the real higher level of medicine where we don't have an exact path. You know, we can look at this case over here and this case over here and what happened to you is kind of similar in the middle. So, uh, and that was also a, a, um, a, a, a challenging and frustrating thing at times because the doctors would come in and they would say, hey, so here are your options. We're talking about rebuilding your face. Uh, so option A, we can do this. Here are the risks. Option B, we can do this. Here are the risks. Option C, here's what we can do. What do you want to do? And I remember Eric and I would be like, That's what do you mean? Crazy. You're the doctors. Yeah. Like, you should be telling us, but they were like, no, there are risks. You have to decide. So um, I'd always been kind of fascinated with medicine. So um, frequently I was like, hey, give me an anatomy book and like 
let me go That's find That's unusual, someone. yeah. No, I wanted to know. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand what they were doing and why they were doing it and what, what really were the risks. Um, so the whole process kind of went like that. Um, what were you thinking about? You know, were you, here you are, and the Jason I'm seeing in front of me now looks completely different. This has been a process over years of rebuilding. You're a very confident, capable human. When you stepped out for the first time, do you feel as if your confidence had changed? I mean, very rarely does someone get such devastating injuries. And I don't mean that in a victim or any kind of way, but uh, or extreme injuries where they become, you know, physically disfigured. Well, facial injuries are so tough. So for anybody out there that's had facial injuries, I can empathize. As humans, everything about us is it comes through our face. We look at each other, we talk to each other, our emotions are on our face, everything, you know, our eyes. And so if you have a facial injury, it is the first thing anybody notices. It attracts so much attention. And that was really hard in the beginning. Everywhere I went, I mean, I attracted attention kids unwanted unwanted attention you know people would be shocked they would see me and be shocked uh kids would be shocked mommy what happened to that guy that guy's messed up um how did you deal with that i got angry (laughs) for a while i got angry i i i i think sometimes unfortunately um <clears throat> I've put a chip on my shoulder as I've grown up, which has helped me to be successful. Um, as I'm older, I don't know if it's always the best method. Um, it has worked for me. Um, and, and I kind of turned that on for a little bit. You know, I just said, screw you, you know, if you don't like me. And I would, um, I reached a point where I would throw it in people's face. Um, if I saw them staring and they oh, were staring man. too long, yeah. I would wait till they got close and then I would like lunge at them or, or boo, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, bark at them or whatever it was just to make them. When did that stop? When did that stop? Um, last year? No, no, not at all. It didn't last too long. I mean, probably the first few years, you know, because they, they started making progress and I think I started, uh, it was probably within the first two years. That's all. Uh, but it got. And the doctors told me it will get worse before it gets better, the rebuilding process. And not only that, uh, I had setbacks, I had infection problems. Um, like I said, the, the, this is the third nose they built me. Um, the second one suffered terrible um, uh, uh, infection problems that got into my face, and they ended up having to go in and cut it all out. So, I mean, at one point, I just had a hole in my face uh, where my nose was, uh, you know, like Skeletor or a horror movie or something. And I, I wore like a gauze patch. And um, yeah, that was just uh, miserable. And for a period of time, you put all, I don't want to dive into kind of physical leadership right at the second, because I think there's a more pressing aspect to your story. One, I would like to think that you haven't had any other medical issues, which uh, uh, we know isn't true, but now solved. Uh, We'll circle back to that at the end. But the very obvious pressing next part of this conversation is you had a near-death experience. At that moment, 
you recognized family, your wife, your children. You have been married to the long-haired admiral, who is a friend of mine, Erica Redman, and you have three beautiful, good, tough children. When I say tough, I mean mentally tough. One takes after you, and they're both all, I have met all of them, all amazing children. How did you do that? How did you change when you got home? I One, I think I recognized, well, l- let's back up for a second because I think how did we do that with the kids is an important question. I think we both intentionally and unintentionally did. Um, Erica and I are, you know, she's my best friend. She is my confidant and and throughout our marriage as it's gotten further along and definitely with my injuries i mean she we were lockstep in everything we did from the medical decisions that we were making she was right there with me to figure out all this all these complicated things and one of the things from the very beginning um was when do we let the kids see you? And I did not want the kids to see me. And how old were they? Were they five, two, and? Yeah, two, five, and eight. And eight. And uh, so I, like right in the beginning when I got back, I mean, obviously when I saw myself in that in that mirror, I was like, you're terrifying looking. Like you look like a monster. I don't want the kids to see me like this. So I wanted some more surgeries to be done where hopefully some of the swelling could go down and they could make me look a little more presentable. I also didn't want them in the beginning. I was in the ICU. I had all these tubes and wires and everything. I didn't want the kids to see me like that. Um, I wanted to walk into the room where they were, which I was too weak to do that in the beginning. Um, So that was kind of one of my first things which ended up being you know almost four weeks after i got home that i saw and i'm sure all you wanted to do was see them and hug them i did not want them to see me like that so i don't think there was this intense like i i i think i was kind of struggling and getting myself to where okay i'm ready um when you saw them was were you just well here's what's neat kids are um for those of you that have kids, if you will understand this, for those that don't, the term unconditional love definitely comes from children and specifically your children because they love you in a way that you cannot fathom with any other human being. Even your spouse is not quite as deep as what you feel for your children and what they have for you. And, um, when Erica first saw me, I was terrified of how she was going to handle my injuries. I was afraid she would say, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I mean, you know, those lines in marriage of till death do us part or for better, for worse, sickness and health. They're great lines, but so many people don't adhere to them. And I didn't know, uh, I didn't know, you know, even though Erica and I had a great relationship, I was scared. So she crushed that test, uh, of course <laughs> destroyed it. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't know how the kids were going to handle it. You know, were they going to, were they going to be afraid of me? Were they going to, you know, run out of the room crying? Um, so there was a high level of fear of like, how is this going to go? Erica's so smart. Uh, she, she got each of the kids a toy she knew they wanted. Um, and brought them. So when we finally reached a point where I was ready, 
uh, there was a family room down the hall from my room and they were there and I walked down into that room and Erica had gotten these toys. And um, so each one of the kids, I gave this toy to. Uh, so they had the toy to play with. And and um, I think my my middle, who is my most precocious, was like, oh, you know, it's still daddy. He just looks funny. Um, which didn't really hurt my and is feelings. It Sierra? It was, was it yeah, that was Sierra. And it didn't really hurt my feelings. It just, I don't know. It, it was like, he's still daddy. And uh, that kind of pushed us over. The other thing we did is we never changed their schedule. And we were fortunate enough to have family that we were able to do that, that they were able to come in and they went to school, they went to dance, they went to soccer. Like that schedule never changed. Regardless of the physical injuries that you had, because I'm sure that there was not just healing in the hospital, but. Well, I was for the first eight weeks, I was in the hospital and Erica was up there with me. She did not leave my side except for, you know, a few times. And she's still like that. That is oh, yeah. how she rolls. She's fierce. She, she is. She's a, she's a Spartan wife. She is a Spartan wife. So she's definitely a so. sister. But I think that. Um, really laid the groundwork and, and how I would not, not to say I didn't have hard days, um, but for the vast majority of the time, when I had those hard days and, you know, there were some where, you know, I woke up and cried my eyes out and like, this sucks. Um, but I felt like, hey, once again, you go back to that leadership journey where I'd failed as a leader. Like I knew the recipe and guess what? You may not be leading a platoon of guys, but you're leading this family and, and your kids are going to feed off you. So if you're a hot mess, your kids are going to feed off that. So I was like, you gotta, you gotta get up. You gotta be positive. You gotta drive forward. Let's go. So if you were to think of the top three things that you would give for leadership in one sentence, one, two, and three, what would those be? Lead yourself, you know, lead yourself with structure, discipline, and positivity. You know, you, you can't control everything around you, but you can control you. And uh, once it comes back to that choice. So if you lead yourself, regardless of the situation, focus on small victories, um, be resilient. Um, life is going to be hard. You're going to be hit with all kinds of problems and issues and things aren't going to go according to plan. Uh, but if you just keep driving forward and putting one foot in front of the other, I mean, you know, people like, what's your superpower? I'm super tenacious to a fault. Like, I mean, sometimes, you know, I'm uh, idiotic about it, uh, which as I get older, I'm tr trying to get a little smarter. But yeah, self-leadership, resilience, and, and then um, build a good team. That was going to be my next one. What about, you know, you sit here before me and where the other part of you is, is actually Erica. Yeah. And... We focus a lot on the leadership of the individual, which would be you. The other half of that and the underbelly of that is Erica. And not only does she create that foundation for you. And again, I take care of um, a large amount of military operators. The majority of the men in my practice, including you, are SEALs. And one thing that always strikes me. now. When you think about my patient population, I take care of 
uh, CEOs, mavericks, real innovators, people that are out there changing the world. And changing the world doesn't necessarily just have to be a CEO in, in a leadership position. And then another part of the practice is special operations. Every single one of those patients, before we make any major change, says, um, I'm just going to run this by my wife. Here you guys are the toughest of the tough. Yet when it comes to decision making and um, medical decision making or you know whatever it is, hands down, they always, always want to run it by their significant other. It's not like that in any other with any other individual in the practice are you know just strikingly the team guys and and we talked about this earlier and I was fascinated by this cuz I I think it is a foundation of any good relationship and any good team um and not all seals are good at this I will say <laughs> but I also preface that is the seals that are in my practice are yeah. very good um right they're not just the Rootin' tootin' frogman who is out uh, serenading the numerous women. Right? Well, We've gotten say, rid I mean, of all those. I, I love all my teammates, <laughs> yeah. you know, but we also have one of the highest divorce rates in the entire military. So obviously, the guys who were not communicating well with their spouse, uh, you know, it probably doesn't bode well. And I know guys like that. They were like, hey, you know, what happens in my job is my business, and, you know, I'm not going to share anything with my wife. Whereas I feel like most of us who managed to defy those odds, like Erica and I, and the other SEALs that I know that are still married after combat Years. tours yep. and you know a career in this uh they, they were they were locked at the hip and if you look at a seal platoon um which is fascinating why other seals wouldn't do this also if you look at the key leadership in a platoon you have the officer in charge of a platoon and you have the um you have the senior enlisted in charge of a platoon. So you have typically, I mean, if we go to the lowest platoon level, you have a lieutenant and a chief um, or a lieutenant and a senior chief, either way. Um, they do everything like together. It is, you know, one is focused downward and inward on the guys. The other is focused outward and where they're going and how they're getting things done. But no matter what, they're lockstep together. Everything is communicated everything hey what i'm doing outward is directly going to impact the guys so lt and the chief are working together to do that everything that is impacting the guys you know the chief is making sure that the uh the lieutenant officer knows because it's going to impact what they're externally able to do so i would just i don't know for me it just kind of made sense like this is how we run things um and eric and i have been that way and she has um Man, she is tougher than most people I know um, from the, the, you know, from the moment she walked into that hospital room uh, when she first saw me and I was a hot mess. I mean, tubes coming out of everywhere and she walked right up and kissed me on the lips and was like, we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. And I mean, you talk about a relief for me, like, oh my God, like, hey, you're my, you're my mate, like we're going to do this together. And, um, that was super powerful. And then, you know, all the way through, um, when they sent me home, you know, they were like, Hey, we're going to sign a home healthcare nurse. But when they sent me home, man, I was still a hot mess. I'm in a wheelchair. I got an external fixator. I'm, I'm traked. I'm wired shut. I, I have a stomach tube to be fed. Um, and even though we had a home health nurse, 
every day, like my wounds had to be clean. A trach is disgusting. Uh, and, and Erica would have to help clean that. Um, I, uh, Obviously, because I'm wired shut, I couldn't eat. So, you know, we're feeding me talk, through a stomach. I could talk. We learned, uh, they, they ended up capping my trach, and I learned how to, you know, talk with the cap on and deal with that after a while. Um, but yeah, Erica was like my best nurse. How, and going forward, how many years ago was that, those injuries? 2007. 2007. So we're coming up on 15 years. 15 year. years. Over the last 15 years, what would you say is the key to a strong, dynamic, and committed relationship, a, a husband and wife relationship, or whatever you know your partner is? Sh shared path, mutual. Because uh, you guys work together as well. We do, which a lot of people can't do. I mean, I meet a lot of uh, guys I know that are in business that are like, oh my God, I could never work with my wife. Uh, but but a, a, a shared vision of the future and where you're going is critical. Um, I would say that um, uh, communication, key. I mean, you gotta be able to communicate and and then a mutual respect of each other is important that, you know, I don't care how great a relationship is. Eric and I are aligned probably 95% of the time, but sometimes we're not. And sometimes we differ in the way we do things. She does things differently than I do. I do things differently than she does. When she gets frustrated, she has her own ways of dealing with that. Usually she locks down and doesn't want to communicate. I get confrontational. Um, so understanding that and, and navigating those things, I think, is, is critical. Um, you know, it's not, you know, we're a people call us a power couple and i'd say we are but it's not we don't skip down the yellow brick road 24 7 i mean you know that's the, the difference you figure things out and we're we're quick i'm i'm we're quick to say hey i'm sorry mm. be quick to say i'm sorry and it sounds like know the other person's way in which they communicate and, and what their needs are in terms of you know, if, if something goes awry, how do does one person shut down? Does the other person communicate? Mutual respect and shared vision, which is huge. I I think that whatever that shared vision is, if it's not aligned, two people are going two different directions. Or at least one person can really buy into the other person's vision and is like, you know what, I'm I'm gonna support this. Your health journey has been pretty easy and straightforward after you went through the surgeries, you know, there was a period of time where, I mean, listen, we've known each other for at least a handful of years. You've been doing great. But it didn't, it didn't start that way. I, I know where you want to go. I want to, I want to touch on one thing because I think it's really important. And that is my journey of physical leadership stalled after I retired because like many people, I'm like, oh, well, I'm no longer a SEAL. I'm on this different path. I need to build my business. And I also was still struggling with some of the invisible demons. And is that the PTSD or was yeah. that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how much you've discussed kind of being in war, losing a bunch of guys. And then do they have any kind of rehabilitation for that? Or they were just dealing with the physical injuries for you? Yeah, it was just physical. Um, and I'll be honest, I, I think that like many of us, I was a tough guy. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And um, 
all of that kind of piled up a couple of years after I retired. And like many of us, I was self-medicating. I wasn't working out. I really wasn't taking care of myself. And I had convinced myself that, well, you're never going to be the person you were before. So why bother? Um, which is all a lie. That's a lie. Yeah. So, and it kind of was an evolution and something that I speak on to other people now that I had, I didn't fully commit to transforming myself once again until I came to grips with the fact that you're never going to be the same person you were, but guess what? There's a new 100% here. You just have to figure out what that is. And now it's your job to get to that new 100%. So stop looking at the past and trying to say, well, I want back the world I had. I want back this, you know, Jay Redmond before he was wounded and, and you have to become this new version. And that really, uh, it, 2016 on transformed me. Uh, and I started really, fo- I really got deep into how do I take care of myself? Because I'm, I, this is funny. There'll be guys out there that'll laugh. And for all you older older seals out there, if you hear this, this is no the geriatric. Yeah, this yeah. is no disrespect for you, but I am an older seal, um, in the aspect that when I grew up, I came in in '92. Human performance programs, nutrition, none of that stuff existed. Uh, it was still the old school mindset of you when you train. You crush yourself <laughs> yes. into the ground. Yes. Uh, nutrition? What's that? Let's go to McDonald's and get uh, a happy meal. Yeah. And uh, and hey, sleep? You don't need sleep. We're going to drink all night and uh, <laughs> go lay down for an hour. And yes. at 5 a.m., we're getting up and we're working out. So I didn't really, I was physically hard. What's the saying? Uh, yeah, if you're, if you're going to be, uh, if you're going to be dumb, you got to be hard. (laughs) There you go. I was physically hard and many of us were, but also we had, there were few seals during that time who had made it to 10 years without a shoulder surgery or knee surgery because of the way we trained. We chronic overtraining, our nutrition sucked. I mean, only a few guys were smart enough to actually start doing things like that. So I didn't start getting smart on nutrition or training or any of that until after I retired. Um, so that kind of became this new journey. Meeting you helped me with that, like trying to learn and really understand my body and who I am and where I'm at because everybody's different. I, I came to learn that like somebody can do this nutrition plan and they won't get the same result as somebody else just because our physiology is slightly different. So anyways, that's what I wanted to say that because I know a lot of people out there, I meet them. I meet people that I'm talking to and they're like, well, you know, I was this college athlete and I suffered this injury. So I don't really work out anymore because of this injury. And I'm like, well, what's wrong with the rest of your body? You know? It's a good point. Yeah. And you, I mean... Uh, I would say that you've really maintained a level of fitness. There was just a period where it was more recently, which I think we've really gotten over. Um, which is really hard. If, that yeah. was a pretty big impact. I did not see it coming. A life ambush. Can we talk about it? Yeah. The fourth life ambush I've been through. Let's talk about your fourth life ambush. So uh, I was probably back to almost the best shape I've been in. In 2019, um, no, 2020, it was 2020. So probably the best shape. I mean, I was setting strength records for myself, you know, um, 
and and had set some really lofty strength records. Like the doctor had told me I'll never lift more than 50 pounds with this arm. And I decided, well, I'm going to do a 500 pound deadlift. Um, maybe a little excessive, but you I got think? up to, I got up to 410 uh, and was in the fall of 2020 when um, I thought I had a heart attack and we didn't know what it was. Um, chalked it up as just a fluke thing. A couple of weeks later, it happened again. It was worse this time. Went back to the ER. They couldn't find anything. And then steadily kept having more and more of these uh, and just kind of fell off a cliff starting, you know, December into January, going into early 2021. Uh, lost a whole bunch of weight, was having swallowing issues, um, was having cognitive issues, was having balance issues, developed massive anxiety and panic attacks. I developed an incredible fear of dying in my sleep. So I was every night I was terrified to go to sleep that I wouldn't survive the night. Um, and I was going to these different doctors and nobody could figure anything out. Um, I remember at one point, I went to a Navy internal medicine doctor and, you know, once again, uh, you know, bedside manner and dude, choice of words matters. Uh, when you tell somebody, and I, I, I know I'm a SEAL and probably on the outside, I can carry a, a pretty decent level of confidence. Um, but when it's your health, it's uh, yeah, out of your I control. I was terrified of, I'll be honest, I really was convinced I was dying. Yeah. I was exploring neuro neurological disorders. Yeah. I, um, uh, maybe around this time they had looked at my blood and my blood was messed up and somebody mentioned, oh, well, this sometimes can be precancerous, you know, the way my blood was. And this doctor, um, basically said to me, Hey, you're a medical mystery, nah, but, but we, we got it. We got it figured out. Yeah. Well, you did. You got it figured out. You did. You know, so guys, I mean, I'm, I'm going to plug the hell out of Dr. Gabrielle here. And I know she probably doesn't. That's not why we're on here. But uh, every other doctor, so many other doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And, uh, and, and Dr. G, I think from your level of experience, having worked with special operations guys who go all over the world, you also have uh, a, a background in, in parts of Eastern medicine along with Western medicine. And you started looking at, you know, well, what are more exotic things that we could be dealing with? And that's when we started to figure out or through some of the blood work and through some of the things, one of the tests that I had to do that turned out that I had a severe parasite that created a blood disorder. Yeah. And you also had pernicious anemia and yeah. the pernicious anemia was masked because of um, certain therapies that were being utilized and then sleep apnea. All of these things masked what was really going on. But at the end of the day, we figured it out. Figured it out. Fixed it. And you are good to go. Yeah. Back on track. Yeah. I'd say almost, I'd say 99%. I don't, and I don't know if I'll ever be 100% again. I've come to accept that. I, and I think that's I sometimes think you're doing how like, great. I, I think I, you're doing I, pretty I'm, great. No, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm crushing it in all aspects. I but would agree. You know, I, I will say this. You used to always ask me, how do you feel? Mm -hmm. And I would say, I feel great prior to getting sick. Like I did. I mean, I was, you know, that happened when I was 46, 45. 
I feel great. Like, yeah. And it always dumbfounded me. Like, do other people not feel great all the time? You know, it was funny to me. And now after all that's happened, there are frequently times that I just feel off. And some of it I think is probably mental from the the, the a little bit of residual you also it also brings up a lot of trauma that you had you know it wasn't like you had one or two surgeries yeah. you had four years of surgeries uh you also had some pretty significant experiences within that hospital setting and regardless the body encodes experience because we don't want to relearn every time we have a new experience so you know this well, is one of the things those nights in January and February, and I mean, I called you frequently like, oh my God, I think I'm dying. My throat is closing up. I mean, I need to go to the hospital. And and now I look back, I mean, they were, they were panic attacks. They were severe panic attacks. But that I'd rather be shot in the face again than have to go through that again. That was the worst. And, you know, um, Sitting on the side of my bed, wondering if I like, am I going to die? Am I going to make it through to see tomorrow? Uh, that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it it makes me think of. So you've had four major life ambushes. Do you ever think, okay, well, that's great. My life ambushes are over. I've done my time. Do you? How would you suggest someone? goes about their life just sitting and waiting, or is there always something in the back of your mind where you expect? something to happen i expect something to happen uh although you can't allow it to stop you from living uh and some of that comes about from seal training and seal training i think one of the reasons why navy seals have become the premier special operations force uh and of course you know my green beret friends and ranger I was friends just say, say you're, oh, you're, you're really offending but, all the rangers now. but hey man and i love all you guys we're sorry there, katie yeah i our ability to adapt and I think the way we train and I mean I've trained with those guys and, and they don't train the way we do and um, one of the things we're really good we're sadistic in how we train like hey what's the worst case scenario okay so now let's figure out how to amplify how, let's figure out how to 10x this worst case scenario yeah that sounds good that'll be our training scenario so it makes it so bad that most of the time when you're in combat, it's really not that big a deal. And it, I kind of now have lived my life this way. I often think, well, what happens if the worst was to happen? What, you know, a lot of people say, oh my God, you're so dark. Like I think about well, what happened if I lost a child? That's probably the biggest life ambush I've seen. And that's really hard to think about, but at least I know, okay, I've, I've, I've touched that darkness. I know at least the tentative beginning of a plan, God forbid that happened for me to get off that X and drive forward. What is it? Can you share? I mean, I'd have to keep living. And it's the same thing I do now. I think about my teammates that are gone. You know, I, I everybody's like, oh my God, you're the most positive overcome guy. I have hard days too, but I'm still- I here. was just saying, but you don't have bad I days. I don't have bad days because I am still alive. And I have teammates who are no longer here who were far better SEALs than I was that I'm like, dude, you owe it to them. Like, you can't lay here and feel sorry for yourself. Like, just because you had a hard day or you're struggling with this or whatever it is, like, you owe it to those guys because they and their families would give anything. And I think it would be the same way if I lost Erica, if I lost one of the kids. You owe it to them to keep going, to honor, to honor their memory and legacy and live for them. 
And I think to me, that's probably the greatest tribute of being human is you can, if you're still here, you can honor those who are no longer here. It's a, it's an unfortunate fact. I mean, death is a part of life. Um, but if you're still here, you know, it's a good day. It's up to you to make it a great day. So that's, that's how I look at it. Um, so I know there's probably more life ambushes out there for me. I don't know what they are. I try to, I have processes that I talk to people about to be balanced and ready for those ambushes. And some you can see coming and some, some you'll never see coming. But you got to keep living. You have to keep living. Jason Rudman, thank you so much for spending time with me. And I know that the listener is going to find incredible benefit. We're going to put everywhere where they can find you. You are a phenomenal speaker. You are a phenomenal human, really one of our favorites. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. And no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition. They may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.